So my name is Sarah Lynch. I am an attorney at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. I've been working at CLS for just over a year, um, primarily focusing on initial and recon cases. And I'm presenting today with Linda. Linda, do you just want to briefly introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Linda Cosme, and I retired from the Social Security Administration in August of 2018, where I served in many capacities, um, Office of General Counsel, Appeals Counsel. I also worked at the Disability Determination Services for some 10 years, all in all, probably been working in the field way too long. And now I have the privilege and the opportunity of working with CLS, and uh, Sarah's going to hold my hand here through the day. Yeah, and um, I'll probably ask, um, well, I, I will ask um, Silvana Mar Madariaga to chime in um, at a couple of points in this session. Uh, she is the paralegal working um, with me on, on these cases. Um, so she's on this call as well. And so everyone can see my screen. Um, you can drop in the chat if you can't see it. Um, okay. So, we are a work in progress. We're um, this project uh, working on cases from initial and recon all the way through to hearing is new. And so um, we, we don't have all the answers and we're still learning and growing. So we're excited as you all take on these cases to be part of a conversation with us about how we can do our work better. And so if you have any questions also, please ask. And so what is the Community Disability Advocacy Project at CLS? Um, we are community focused uh, and we reach people who are not accessing this critical source of income and should. We partner with people in, with disabilities and their support networks to navigate this Byzantine complex system. We build strong cases to win, um, to win and to also win faster, hopefully. We connect people with treatment and care when we see gaps in um, their access to medical treatment. We expand our reach by training and consulting with other practitioners and community groups and case managers. And we also, the most important I think is we learn from clients and community partners um, to promote systemic change. And so you'll see this kind of long quote on the side that I think is important to ground ourselves in. And it's a perspective about this system and about our, the culture that we have in our society and what that reflects. And it says, the nature and mode of assistance provided through both social insurance disability programs and means tested public assistance programs reinforce a social and economic system in which the ideal citizen is a male engaged in waged work that provides sufficient income for family support and who is without responsibility for caretaking within the home. Because this ideal neither reflects the lived experience of most families nor addresses the structural causes of poverty or the inequitable distribution of poverty and disability in society, the development of a new ideal or ethic must be promoted. And I struggle with this in our work because I think the way that the regulations are written and the way that our healthcare system is set up and the kinds of questions that social security asks and assumptions that social security makes really puts at the center um, a male bodied person um, who is providing 
for for the family um, and not having caretaking responsibilities. And that is not the experience of most of my clients. And so we have to kind of create a new narrative and create um, and, and work on changing the culture so that we can influence the system and the regulations that are built on those cultural assumptions to change as well, in my opinion. Okay, so here's um, just kind of a big picture. Um, we're gonna talk about like referrals, meeting a client, doing an initial workup, and we'll give you some tools. Um, we're gonna talk about, you know, starting a case, intake is everything. We'll talk about non-disability issues that are going to inevitably arise. We, we had the non-disability training, so we'll go over some of the ones that are frequent flyer issues for us. And we'll talk about um, the SSI interview in this first. Okay, so tracking um, is the first and foremost, the most important um, piece of representing at this level. Um, there's no, in contrast to a hearing, there's no hard deadline um, apart from if your case gets denied or if you get a protective filing date and you have 60 days to appeal or finish the application. Other than that, it's rolling and things happen really fast. And so you need to constantly be tracking um, dates. You need to be tracking when you make a request and when you get them back. And um, when you send the records that you get into social security as you're obligated to do under the all evidence rule as soon as practicable. So that means immediately in most cases. And so this is a sample of a tracker that I use and I encourage you all to develop one that works for you. And we have cases that are referred to us that are not ripe for an application. Um, and we'll talk about why that is. We have cases where we've established a protective filing date for someone and we'll talk more about what that means, but essentially that means we waved our hands at social security and told them we intend to apply for this person and their back benefits should go back to the month after whatever that date is, but they still need to complete their application uh, and all the way down. We have when there's an initial case, but it has not been assigned an adjudicator. So we need to be on the lookout for that person's number. When it's been assigned an adjudicator, when it's denied and we have to appeal within 60 days for recon, when, there's, when it's pending an assignment, when it's assigned and when it's denied um, and we have to appeal for hearing. So um, there's a lot of steps in these cases and there's a lot to track. Um, and so that's why um, we, we've set this up and you can make your own version. Uh, another tracker that we use, and I'll show you an example with a client whose um, initials are here, so it's not revealing who they are. Um, but you'll need to you'll need to track the bulk of records that are coming in and when they're coming in. And so this is one that we use, and we we have like the status um, when we've received records, we make a note. When we submit it to BDD, we make a note. I also like to put in the doctor's name because sometimes my client will not know the provider, but they'll say, oh, I'm going to see Dr. Raphael. 
And most important is putting in the addresses, the exact address and suite number is often the information that you need and it seems tedious, but that is what BDD is gonna be asking you for and the phone number. And um, I track when I've requested the records and I follow up accordingly. So if there's one thing you get from this presentation today, it is use, take advantage and use the materials that we're sending afterwards and make a tracker. Um, that, is, that is one of uh, the most important takeaways. Um, and then when you do intake, um, this is the most important the most important step of getting to know your client and getting to know their case and its potential. So take careful notes, um, write down the diagnoses that they have, which doctors um, have given them that diagnosis, uh, the treatment providers' names, addresses, phone numbers, um, and you can get that information later, but keep track of, start, start putting the information into your tracker and also um, write down the person's mother's maiden name, play, the place of birth for your client, their height and weight, um, because this is information that the field office might ask you when you're calling on their behalf. So it's really good to have that all in your intake notes so you can just search for it and have it ready. Um, you'll also wanna write down any third-party contact information people that your client is comfortable with you reaching out to. We've had a lot of instances where people, um, their phones get turned off, they kind of like disappear. Um, a lot of our clients are really struggling with mental health crises right now and um, are not answering the phone. And so you'll need somebody so that you can get in touch with that person. And that also might be a person who can provide critical information about your client's functioning, uh, especially if your client is not, um, does, not, does not provide as much detail about their functioning or maybe doesn't have as much insight into um, how their functioning might be um, uh, affected by their disabilities. Um, and then also take note of their application history. Did they just have a hearing? Um, when, when, um, when was the last denial? That's important information to know as well. Um, and then we're always thinking about, you know, our clients do not only come to our legal services organizations with one issue they're facing. Um, and this is because people with disabilities, people who are living in neighborhoods that are slated to be impoverished, where people are um, risking losing their homes, where there's high unemployment, where people are facing racist institutions, they're going to have, um, they, they're potentially gonna have other questions, other legal needs or other non-legal needs. So keep, um, it's always good to have uh, information about how to make referrals to other places, um, or maybe um, you're working with folks who are re-entering from incarceration, what re-entry resources. Um, start building your knowledge in these areas. Um, we work with um, a lot of children applying for SSI, and most of the time they are not 
uh, receiving the education services they're supposed to be getting. And that's a major challenge for us proving the extent of their disability um, because you know judges or adjudicators might say, well, Johnny's only getting the lowest level of education support in reading. So he doesn't really need that much um, intervention. And so um, sometimes we, we provide people with education information about how they can ask for what they need in educa the education world. Um, and then office referring to the Office of Vocational Rehab, as Jen talked about, of course, mental health resources, trying to find out how to, how to get a case manager for someone if they need, um, if they express that they need help and they need someone to like help them get to their appointments or whatever. Um, and then you, you have an ally if you're, if you're able to get them a case manager, you have somebody who might be able to provide critical evidence about your client's functioning. Housing support, of course, and immigration support. Um, we just recently won a case for a woman who is coming up on her seventh year in refugee status. So that means that we won her case, but she's not gonna be able to get SSI because um, of our like draconian uh, and harmful immigration rules. Um, so we're working with um, HIAS to figure out how to get her on the path to citizenship as fast as possible. Um, you're gonna get these, uh, you'll get the questionnaire. We, we created a questionnaire that you will get, we're gonna send to you um, that, it, that includes all the information that we would need to do the SSI eligibility application and the disability application. Um, so it's a lot and you might need to go through it with your client on the phone as opposed to like send it to them to complete on their own. It's a little overwhelming, but that should cover the two parts of the application. First part is the SSI eligibility, which we'll talk about. Um, are you financially eligible? Do you meet the immigration um, requirements? And the second part is um, providing information about your disability. So it's all in one questionnaire. We have one for children and we have one for adults. You'll need to send your client a 1696 um, to show that you're representing. And you'll need to do pretty consistent follow-up with the field office uh, because they might not process it by the time you're ready to apply. And that might present you some issues. The SSA 3288 is so that you can get information about your client's previous cases, or you can get maybe like a consultative, consultative exam if you're unable to get it during um, your representation. Um, I'm not gonna go too much into it, but it's a good idea to have them sign this in, from the get-go. Um, and this, this is for CLS purposes. Of course, your, all your release forms and um, get ready to send them the function report. If you don't send it right away, um, be ready to send it soon after so that they can start working on it. Okay, so here's a little participation uh, activity. Uh, if you would all um, entertain me with an answer here, um, it says for non-disability issues, things that are gonna come up uh, when you're helping people apply. So please drop in the chat box some non-disability issues that people face at the initial recon level. 
Um, I already gave one of them away with one of my client examples. So you can steal that. Um, and so I'll just give you, you know, I'll give you a few minutes to write down what in your experience, or maybe you learned something at the last training of a non-disability issue that might come up. Great, I'm seeing living arrangements, family members providing rent or food assistance. What else are people thinking? Work or unemployment, totally. Homelessness, yeah, anything else? Abuse. Um, medical treatment, um, yeah, over-resource, having too many, too much money in savings or a life insurance plan that is being held against them. Thank you. Um, I think we're going to talk about all of these. Um, I'm curious for the person who said abuse, um, uh, maybe you can add a little bit more, but um, it, um, abuse people who are um, being, who are in situations of uh, intimate partner violence or abuse um, might have, um, might have difficulties just um, maybe with their housing or um, accessing, yeah, domestic violence issues um, were, I think I think that 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 could relate to a number of things, um, but financially, um, yeah, making the process more difficult, and and financially too, um, people who are married, for example, their spouse's income um, is going to be considered, in and it'll be part of the means test. Um, so that's and and yeah, just the relationships that people are in might make the process of applying more difficult. And also um, that can go into the disability um, part as well. Um, okay, so um, Linda, I'm gonna do just a little bit of Q and A with you based on, and, and some of the folks have already touched on this in the chat, um, but what, um, so there's, this is a means tested program um, what that means in reality is to be an SSI, you have to be living in poverty. You have to have very little income and little to no resources. Um, and for when you're in the program, you have to stay in poverty. Um, there's no incentive to save money because if you do, you might be over-resourced. Um, so Linda, what counts as a resource? Uh, resources can be everything from, you know, whether you own your car, uh, if you own your house, uh, if you have bank accounts, um, depending on the types of insurance that you may or may not inherit, they may be considered a resource. Uh, anything you have in the bank, if you have any uh, retirement fund, basically think of it in terms of uh, cash and anything of value that could be a resource. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as we talked about in the last training, um, the, the property that you own, the home that you live in, that will be exempted. Um, but if you have a second property, 
And sometimes folks are not aware that they might have something in their name, something they inherited, that's gonna be considered. Um, and um, you, can, you cannot have more than $2,000. This uh, amount, uh, we talked about this in the last presentation, it's been decades since this, been, this has been updated. Um, and income is any money that you, um, that you are um, earning, uh, anything from like, you know, anything, any work that you're doing that's remunerative, or it could be money that someone's giving you, um, money, money coming in um, that's apart from, you know, any savings that you have. Um, and that's considered on a monthly basis. And it can't be more than like, I think 1310 now in, in 2020, if you have, if you're getting more than 1310 a month, um, you are ineligible. And I'm seeing from Karen, whole life insurance policies, or Carrie, sorry, uh, whole life insurance policies seniors were sold instead of term with the funeral director as beneficiary, that cash value comes back to bite them after years of having no idea it was a problem. Right, so um, yeah, so um, talk to your clients about um, about their life insurance policies that they have, um, what encourage them to figure out what kind it is and do that research um, on the front end. And these questions are also in our questionnaire. So um, people, your clients and their families can start to think about that. Um, and deeming, um, deeming will come up. Um, that comes up, especially with kids, um, their parents' income is deemed to them. And so there, um, there's charts that you can look up um, online to kind of figure out and calculate it. Um, so it's, it's a higher income limit when it's deemed to children, but it's still there. Um, okay, so ISM, um, people were saying in the chat, thank you for sharing that um, they, if someone's getting food and uh, housing from someone else, that that could be an issue. Um, and so this could be considered in-kind support and maintenance. Um, and then also what will be considered is even if it's not in-kind support and maintenance, but someone's getting financial support from someone that could reduce the check that they get um, on the back end. But Linda, what is um, in-kind support and maintenance? Um, well, on the issue of in-kind support and maintenance, I think um, the critical thing that I immediately think about is making sure you have the agreements, um, it, it, even if you're not sure what something constitutes itself to be, you wanna have a written statement um, regarding payment back. Uh, for example, let's say someone has um, allowed you to have uh, free room and shelter, or, or, but that has a value and you want to be able to document that the cost of that service or that, that, that uh, award, uh, that you're gonna pay it back. And so you want a written document and depending on the state that you're in, sometimes a verbal agreement for the social security administration is valid if you live in a state where oral agreements are accepted as a contract, it's considered an agreement. But if you live in a state that requires the agreement to be in writing, 
Um, that's the only way they'll honor the agreement as a contract. You'll need a signed written agreement. Thank you. Yeah, and um, I put in the chat that SOAR has a great example of a bona fide loan agreement. Um, those are kind of the words to search. And um, it should be signed um, in Pennsylvania. It should be signed by both the landlord and the tenant. We see this a lot with people living with um, family members. And for young adults living with parents, if the person is 18 and over, their income is the one that is considered for, um, for deeming purposes. But they, if they're living with their parents and getting food and shelter from their parents, that will be considered in-kind support and maintenance. And a third of their um, SSI check will be reduced, it'll be reduced by a third. And so we're trying to help people avoid losing um, what's already, you know, the, the checks are already insufficient for people to live on and they'll lose a third of it if, um, if they're getting a deduction for in-kind support and maintenance. And um, the cool thing about representing people at this level, at the initial level, is you can get ahead of this. You can submit the bona fide loan agreement signed by both parties at the application stage. And when they get back benefits, when you win, potentially two years later, um, they're gonna get the full 700, what is it now, 794? I, I, I forget what the increase is, but they're gonna get the full amount for those two years back versus a third being taken out. And that's a lot of money for people. Um, so I, I was hoping people would put this in the chat, but maybe, um, uh, I don't know, maybe I already spoke too, too much about it, but um, there's a seven year rule um, for anything that is at this initial and recon level, any rule that you, are, you need to know about, just search the POMS, the Program Operation Manual. Just Google POMS and the issue, right? So like POMS immigration seven-year rule. Um, and that'll tell you more about it. Uh, Non-citizens are unable to get SSI. However, um, there are some exceptions and um, people who are refugees and asylees, for example, are able to get SSI, but only for seven years from the date of when they get that status. And a lot of people are unable to get uh, citizenship status before the seven years. So this affects a lot of people. Um, and some people don't even know they're eligible to apply until they've been here for a few years. So they, um, it takes some time for people to be aware. Um, and okay, so another issue that comes up is for people who um, are appealing a CDR denial, they went to the judge and um, the judge uh, ruled unfavorably and they're appealing to the appeals council or to federal court. Those clients are able to start a new application while their appeal is pending. And so you can do a new initial application for them during this time um, and that that's good because then you start the clock ticking to get them back onto benefits if they're ultimately unsuccessful in their other case. Um, and so I put the POMS here. Um, if you forget, you could just put like POMS, new claim or appeal while other cases pending appeals council, it'll come up, but it's um, this POMS, the DI12045.027. 
you might need to have that on hand because the field office might tell you your client's not allowed to apply and you can tell them no, no, they can. And finally, um, there's a lot of other um, non-disability issues that stand in the way of people having getting onto SSI. Um, it is incredibly difficult for people who don't speak English to navigate this system. Mostly everything is in English. There's few forms that are not, um, or that, that are provided in Spanish, but otherwise you're on your, you're, you're pretty much on your own. And I've been told to like, tell my client to like, try to find somebody in their church or community to help them with the forms. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. Um, and so LA, people, limited English proficient clients have a hard time. And um, there recently was a rule change where um, that could, the, the inability to speak English was considered in the grids um, pre prior to the rule being changed. Um, but now inability to speak English is not considered as um, kind of like a, a making it more difficult for people to work. It's, it's not considered anymore on the grids. Um, presumptive disability, that's something that a lot of advocates are talking about now and encouraging social security to um, to find more more cases to be presumptively disabled um, and that's that's if people are likely to meet the listing and you can ask for a presumptive disability finding to just get their um, benefits started to get them on SSI while the case is being adjudicated um, they can start right away on those benefits um, and I think that's for six months, and that gives the field the BDD time to um, to to work up the case. Um, if 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 the case is going slow and um, you need and your client is facing an emergency, you can put in a dire need request. Um, and so I, I've done that before to get a decision back from the appeals council. Um, about a case that was dismissed for my client at this level, I haven't done it, but um, that that can happen. We're seeing we're not seeing the cases move slowly. It's quite the opposite. Um, overpayments is an issue. Um, yeah, prisoner status. Um, if you're incarcerated, uh, you cannot get benefits, and if you're incarcerated for um, over a year, you are cut off of SSI and you have to reapply. And thank you um, to Jacob for dropping in the chat a link that's a nice tool to search um, various social security resources. So NOSCAR um, is an advocate organization and they're really great. And so you can use that link. I would bookmark it. Um, that's what I'm gonna do after this presentation. Okay, so moving on. Um, okay, so now you talked to your client, you met your client, you, um, ha you gave them the questionnaire, you helped them fill it out, you went through, you got a bona fide loan agreement, you got the 1696, you are ready to apply. You need to get a protective filing date. And here's the thing to consider. Um, your client, if they win, will get benefits back to the month after whatever date you apply. It doesn't matter if you get a protective filing date um, in the last day of February or the first day of February. They're not getting benefits for February. They're gonna get them March onward. And so 
sometimes you it it might behoove you to wait until the last maybe like the last week to apply so you can get all your ducks in a row. Um, we do that often, but mark down the protective filing date and make sure that it's accurate um, because you know you could you want to make sure your your clients getting all of the months that they're entitled to. There are two ways to get a protective filing date. One is to start the disability report online. So you just like <laughs> Google's your friend. You just like Google um, apply disability SSI online. The trick, is, the tricky part is that you cannot apply for SSI online. You can apply for other programs online, but not SSI. However, you can submit the disability portion online. And you can, by doing that, you also get a protective filing date. So that's one way to do it. But know that just by submitting something online, you are not applying for SSI. You have to do the other part of the application. Um, so one, you can start the disability report online, get a reentry number, write down that date, print out the confirmation form, have all of your proof that that is the date that you waved your hands to Social Security and said you want to apply because this is the protective filing date. The second way to do to get a protective filing date is to call Social Security and tell them that you want to set up an SSI interview with your client, with you on the line. Um, they're going to ask the mother's maiden name. They're going to ask the place of birth. So that's why you have it in your intake notes. And um, that's the other way to do it. Again, write down who you talked to, write down when you called and write down the date for protective filing date. PFD is important. So, yep, here's the slide. You can do it online or on the phone. Um, again, it's not, we are not able with all the technology we have in this country, we are not able to apply for SSI online. Um, and so when you do the disability report part, um, that's just part of the application and your client will probably get notice that they are not eligible for SSDI. And this is really confusing to people because sometimes the notice that they get says, Sarah Lynch, or like whatever your name is, told us that you do not want to apply for social security. That's like how it's phrased. So we were getting a lot of angry calls from people saying like, how come I came to you for help applying for social security and you went ahead and told them I don't want to apply. That's just the notice that they get indicating they're not eligible for SSDI. Um, and a lot of our clients are not eligible for SSDI. They don't have the adequate work history. So the second part of the interview is the SSI phone interview. Prior to the pandemic, you could have done this in person. Um, you can still also um, fill this out. It's the SSA 8000 form, I think. Um, Savannah can put it in the chat if I'm wrong. Um, and the, the client can sign it and, and mail it in, but good luck with that because the mail is like, it's really slow and hard to track. So do it on the phone. Um, and you, we three-way call with our clients. So we call, we set up the interview, give social security your phone number. They're going to ask you for the client's phone number. 
give them your phone number so that they call you and then you conference call the client. Um, and that's for the, the means tested part. That's gonna be, if you did the disability report online, then all that's left is, you know, what kind of life insurance policy do you have? What are your bank accounts? Um, do you own, you know, do you own multiple cars? Questions like that. Moving along. Sarah, I'm sorry, if I could just interrupt. This is Kelly for the attorneys. I am launching the first of the CLE poll box questions. I will leave it up for about two minutes. And Sarah, please feel free to continue. Great. Um, okay. And I recognize that I'm flying through a lot. Yep, it's the SSA 8000. I'm kind of purposely flying through some of this. You're gonna get a lot of materials from me that will walk you through each part of the process. So um, don't feel like um, I'm gonna leave you hanging, but all of this is really gonna sink in when you're doing cases and, you're gonna, and you get that notice that says, Sarah Lynch said, I don't want, you don't want to apply for SSI. And you're like, oh, I know what this is. I know how to explain this to my client or my client has refugee status. So I know I need to look up the POMs on immigration status or um, you're filling out the questionnaire with your client and you have some sense of why we put a million and one questions in there. So um, you'll, I'll give you my um, contact information too and you can always reach out to me, but um, until you're doing this, uh, a lot is going to kind of go in one ear out the other. Okay, so moving on. Um, kind of talked about all this. Medical records. Um, tracking is everything. Another tracker that we have. Um, can you all see my like tracker for providers? It's a live spreadsheet. Um, Linda, can you give me a thumbs up if you can see it? I can see it. Okay, great. So we at um, CLS, we keep this as a live spreadsheet because providers sometimes change up their fax number out of nowhere. And so we, if we update it on here, it'll update for everyone doing medical records requests. And so as you start to build your practice, build your resources and, um, and have how you make requests, the address, um, putting in the exact address when you can is best because BDD will need that often. Um, and then the phone number that you need to call to follow up because sometimes you're gonna send records requests out there and they're gonna get lost or no one's ever gonna get back to you. So you need a call. Um, and we have one for prisons and we have one for schools. Um, so especially for the charter schools, those, tend to be harder to get records. So you'll wanna put information in there. And sometimes um, sometimes I need to just email the attorney who's retained for the charter school um, because they're just notorious at not sending me things. Okay, um, Silvana, um, I'm gonna ask you just some questions about the function report. Um, so at this point, everyone, you got a protective filing date, you marked it down, you did the disability report, you did the phone interview, and your case is now out of the field office and it is at the Bureau of Disability Determination. 
and uh, it has been assigned an adjudicator. Her name is Stacy. You talked her on the phone. She's really nice. She's getting to work and she sent your client a function report and a work history report. Um, so Silvana, what is like the main takeaways that people should know in helping people to fill out the function report? Um, don't know if I, Silvana, you're on mute if you are. Um, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, it wouldn't let me unmute or turn on my video, but I am here. <laughs> to know. I, think, I think I was able to ask you to unmute. So here we okay. are. Um, take it away. Um, yeah, so function reports. Um, this, I, the, they hold a very special place for me, um, even though they're a really awful form to fill out, just very... Um, kind of dehumanizing form, as is a lot of this process. Um, but they're special in the sense that this is where a person gets to tell their story. This is where they can tell Social Security all of what they're experiencing, feeling, going through um, on a day-to-day. -day. Um, so it will ask them things about um, how they sleep, if they make their own meals, if they um, get dressed on their own, bathe on their own, um, all of that. And we often help clients with these forms uh, or we'll support a case manager who's helping a client or a family member who's helping them. And we really encourage people to put um, a lot of detail into these forms. We kind of give them, we prep them a little bit on it. Um, and it can be a really long process. Sometimes it involves multiple calls with clients, but doing more than just like checking yes or no. There's a lot of check boxes where you can just check yes or no. But we really encourage folks to um, fill in the blanks after that checkbox. Really explain your situation. Like um, explain any accommodations. Like, yes, I bathe on my own, but I have a chair in the shower. And um, I have a family member turn the knobs because I have difficulty turning the knobs or whatever the accommodation is. There's, there's more to the story than just the yes and no oftentimes. Um, so we encourage that and also just filling out the remarks section, um, adding more to your, of your story into the remarks section. And then for the work history form, which we don't fill out quite as much for SSI folks, just depending on if they have a work history or not. Um, but what we do for those is talk to people about what their job was. Uh, their job may have been more than just their job title. So it may have been more than cashier. They may have also been stocking the shelves, um, working in the deli, whatever more their job entailed, really putting all that into the work history form um, because it wasn't just cashier and they can't go back to that job because they did so much more. They did so much lifting or moving things. Um, yeah. That's great, thank you. Um, and I put in the chat links to the form. Um, I put a sample one for children. Um, 
something to know is that a weird wrinkle in the rules is that the field office, um, the field office collects a function report for children and BDD collects a function report for adults. And so what this means in practice is that the field office in that SSI interview is going to do a perfunctory, rapid, insufficient function report with the parent of your client um, at that interview. This is an issue. We should talk more about it. But um, for kids' cases, do the function report before the interview so you can fax it in. So um, main takeaway is like function reports should be really detailed, lots of explanation, use up all the lines in the remarks, um, talk about if your client needed assistance filling it out um, and how, put it all in the remarks, lay it all out there. Um, for adults, that'll come when your case is assigned at BDD. For kids, it's gonna happen well before that. So you'll wanna do the function report at the front end for kids. Um, if you don't and it gets to BDD and you're like, oh, oops, like they only have the one from the interview um, with SSI and, and you know that it's really bad because you were on the phone and you heard your client's parent like not giving a lot of answers and not being asked, just do another one. You can always do, um, you can always do send in multiple functional reports to your heart's desire. Can I have one more thing, Sarah? Yes, please. Um, the, there's also a third-party function report. So you can send that function report um, to anyone that client would like that sent to. Family member, partner, um, lady at the church, um, whoever um, can get that function report. It's uh, a little bit weird. So maybe some folks might find it challenging to fill out if they don't live with the person. Um, so in that case, like if it is that church lady, they could just write a letter or statement to social security saying, see her, you know, cooking the meals, but this is all the things that I, I experience and see with her. Um, the func third party function report kind of is set up as if you like lived with them and saw them bathing and getting dressed and all of that. But. Yeah. And all of this is just about how are you building the record in the most like detailed and robust way. So like if you're if you're thinking like oh my client really doesn't explain well um, how she self isolates, but I know that her cousin who lives nearby can speak to that. You can have them fill out a function report or you can have them fill out a sworn statement, the SSA 795, and send it in. At this level, everything is determined by the paperwork, by the documentation. You're not gonna get a chance yet to ask your client questions on direct examination. So do whatever you can to get that paperwork into the file. Okay, so BDD advocacy. I'm stoked that Linda is here um, because she's just wonderful and um, a great mentor and has so much experience. So I'm gonna ask her a few questions during this portion. Um, you all are lucky to have her expertise. So like get pumped um, because, you know, prior to meeting Linda and prior to me doing a lot of trial and error, BDD was a huge black box. I didn't know like 
what the role of the disability examiner was, what is a medical consultant, why are all my clients being sent to IMA? I didn't know what was going on and I didn't really know who to ask. And apart from like constantly Googling the palms, I was without answers. So I'm gonna ask her a few questions now to give you the opportunity to have more um, of an insider's, in, insider's guide um, than I had when I started out. Um, okay, so in terms of like case development and flow, um, what, um, what in terms of a jurisdiction, uh, Linda, what happens with a case um, after it goes out of the field office and gets sent on for um, adjudication? Um, well, those are good questions in terms of um, the disability examiner. I guess what I want to share is uh, the traveling of that case of how it winds up from the field office into the hands of a disability examiner. So disability examiners, if you understand what motivates them, it will help you in your partnership. And I stress the word partnership because at the initial and recon level, you've got about 20% of the cases that are what I refer to as toss-up cases. Cases where two highly experienced people can actually arrive at different decisions. So if you've got two people with comparable skills and yet one can allow the case and one deny the case, what I want to try to share with you is how to develop that collaboration and that partnership because that will make a difference in terms of you know, hopefully helping your client. So disability examiners are constantly governed by processing time. Whether an examiner gets promoted next year, whether or not they get a bonus, whether or not they get an award, it's based primarily on two things. One, how fast are they processing the case out of the agency? And the second factor being, how accurate is that decision? So with regards to processing time, Sarah, what you want to do is you want to be the disability examiner's assistant, literally. You say to the examiner, examiner, I am here to help you. And you do it with a smile, you do it with energy, you do it gratefully, you know, you're gracious about having the opportunity to help this person. And the examiner will be very open to having someone assist because they're concerned with processing time, moving the case quickly. So if you can help develop the sources, if you can make contacts with um, people that providers that they're having difficulties with, that is a bonus for you. And it's also a credit to, if you have a close case, that may go a long way in helping your client. You want to be able to, uh, when it comes to jurisdiction, examiners wanna get rid of a case, they don't want it. So the very first thing they're gonna ask is, oh, this is a SSI case. And I see that they, they read in the medical records that they just bought a car or they read in the medical records that they have a brand new house. The first thing that examiner is gonna do is send the case right back to the field office for more investigation. 
So jurisdiction, it's like getting to first base for your case. You want to make sure that you've provided the field office with the tools that it needs so you can get to the examiner. When you establish contact with the examiner, consider asking the examiner to put a case on medical hold if possible. And I will briefly explain why this is important. Uh, medical hold is a tool that is used by the DDSs throughout the country to put a case sort of like freeze. And you can do that when someone's having a recent surgery, maybe they've had a heart attack recently, perhaps a stroke, even uh, maybe perhaps, you know, brand new medications that are very harsh. You know, you see that with chemotherapy. Um, putting a case on medical hold freezes the processing time for the examiner. So the upside is that the examiner is happy because the case can sit longer with that examiner and it will not be counted against the examiner. So if you're able to bring it to the examiner's attention, hey, is this a case that might, you know, is this a case for medical hold? And so you wanna highlight that if possible. Thanks, Linda. Um, yeah, I think it's important for people to know that these cases kind of feel like hot potato when they get to the DDD. Um, and the adjudicators are really good at getting records. They, this is what they do. And so they're going to quickly get those records. If you have them, send them in, um, do whatever you can to be helpful to the adjudicator, help your client do the functional report and get it in timely, be communicative. Like if your client is, didn't get the functional report yet because the mail is delayed, keep them informed. Like we are constantly making calls and updating. When in doubt, communicate. Um, so yeah, it could kind of feel like hot potato where you're like, ah, the case just got there. Why is the CE being scheduled? Um, and so I don't want to get ahead. Um, there's some other, um, Linda, did you want to say anything? Um, we talked about medical hold and functional reports. Did you want to say anything before getting to some questions I have for you about CEs? Uh, yeah, a couple more things. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I mentioned like in step two, administrative finality. And, and I'm not gonna get into the details of administrative final, finality, res judicata, collateral estoppel, because that's a little beyond the few minutes we have. But I do wanna share uh, one thing I think is important. So let's say that your case gets denied and typically you file a reconsideration as the next step. And Sarah will probably talk about that. But what you wanna be very aware is the decision about whether or not to file a new case or to appeal. So the, what I have seen a lot is, you know, instead of appealing, someone will run and file a new case. And you have to be very careful because a lot of times you do a client a disservice if you file too soon after a denial. And the way that works essentially is you denied the case unless you have a lot of new sources or something tragic has happened to the client. The chances of you prevailing on a, a new application are even less than the first time. And part of that has to do with 
uh, the definition of disability, right? You have to have an impairment that has lasted at least 12 months. And if you got denied last month, and instead of appealing, you're filing a new application, you can run into a series of complications. Um, Sarah, do you want me to talk a little bit about um, the, um, what happens on cases when they get reversed, where you get a decision that's an allowance and then you get a letter saying that it's been denied? The um, pre-effectuation review at the end? Yeah, I wanna to get to that, um, so, but just one quick thing. Um, we got a question about how do you learn who the adjudicator is and how to contact them when the client's already applied for benefits. Um, so this is why you want to get your 1696 in as soon as possible because it takes the field office, at least in Philadelphia, it takes at least two weeks for that to be processed. And then they have to communicate to BDD that you are the appointed representative. And I think what that looks like from what I've gathered of various conversations is like they put it in a specific folder and that like it has to be on BDD side in a specific folder. Um, and so what you can do, uh, Michael, is call the field office and make sure that your 1696 has been processed and that it's appropriately, it's sent to the right place. And then um, I think you should be able to see my screen. I'm gonna make sure um, that you can see the right one. Um, yeah, so um, this is what you will get in the mail. I just deleted our client's name from it. Um, and there is gonna include the phone number for the adjudicator. And um, during the pandemic, it's always a 717 number. So you can ask your client, like, did you get mail with a 717 number in it? And then you can, call that number. This is going to be like the code for who the adjudicator is. Usually when you talk to them, they'll tell you their first name, but this is like how they're coded. Um, and I think that's like protect, protections from their union agreement of like privacy. Um, and you'll get a barcode. It'll look like this. This is super important to save and to keep. Um, we copy and paste this information into our notes, our legal server notes, so that we can copy and paste it and upload information. And so get this barcode, the, what the most important part, you can always fax stuff if, you, if that's your jam. I upload it because I like to be sure it's going directly to the person in the most efficient way using the RQID. So to do that, you just go to this website that I'm dropping in the chat, um, and then you do send information, and you copy and paste in all of that information from the RQID, your client's um, social security number. So you'll you have that. S six six means it's at Wilkes Bar. S four one means it's at Harrisburg. Um, put all this information in and then upload all of your evidence. Do, do it as it comes in. Um, that's my recommendation to upload your evidence as it comes in. Um, okay, so you have applied with your client. Is there a fax number you can ask for the status update? Yes, and I'll ask Silvana if you could just pull that up. Um, from our, we also have, and I'll quickly show you, this could be a good thing for your offices to, to 
make for yourselves. We have all the numbers for the field offices and the zip codes. Um, and then we've started tracking contact information for all the adjudicators. I'm not gonna show you that because there's some client names on it, but um, we have the, um, the OHO office information all in an easily accessible place. Um, but Silvana will pull from there the number to get um, the status update in the claims adjudicator. Um, thanks for that question, Jen. I will say though that I recently tried to fax and get a barcode and I haven't heard a response. So um, try your luck and let us know how that works. Um, okay, so you've applied with your client, you submitted a bona fide loan agreement so that you know when your client at the back end um, will get all of their, their benefits if they're approved. You help them with the functional report, you help them with the work history report, and your case has been, we'll say approved. We're, we're gonna talk about when it's denied, but say it's approved. And then what happens, Linda? Does, does your client just get a check in the mail? What happens? Uh, no, so this is the um, interesting part is that 50% uh, of all cases that are awarded by the DDS at the initial level are subject to a process called the pre-effectuation review by the Disability Quality Branch at SSA. So basically another you know, uh, disability examiner, more experience, will look at half of these cases by the DDS's, not just in Pennsylvania, but throughout the country. And they wanna check for program consistency. Sometimes you have the BDD issuing one decision favorable, and then you, you, know, you, you talk to the examiner, you're excited, Sarah, because you heard the examiner told you, well, I got the doctor to sign it, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna pay the case. But then there's like dead silence for six weeks. And you're wondering what the heck? Um, and you call and the examiner is not as friendly. The examiner may actually, the examiner cannot tell you what's going on, but they know the case is in quality assurance. So if it's more than, I would say if it's more than six weeks, there's a good chance they're gonna reverse the favorable award to an unfavorable, which will be the corrected decision or the corrected determination. So I encourage uh, representatives to look at, there's a form called the SSA 831. It's a transmittal form, it is in the file. And if you look in the remarks section, you'll see a little writing and the little writing will say something like corrected decision or corrected determination. But it looks identical to any other determination. So you have no idea of what's happened behind the scenes. But the reason it says the word corrected in it is because the people at the DQB office has, re they've reversed the decision. They do not share with the public and they do not share with the representatives, the internal mechanism of what caused the reversal. And many times you'll have um, medical disagreements where the DQB office will have their physician say, no, 
the cardiovascular limitations are for medium work, where the BDD might say, nope, their doctor might say, nope, it's for like sedentary work. And so you've got two doctors that contradict each other. And there is a process, which is probably more information than you need. There is a request for program consultation. It's a third office that resolves conflict between the DDS and the DQB office. And you had no idea all of this was going on for your case as you're sitting anxiously waiting for that decision. The takeaway as a representative is uh, I ask you to be vigilant and alert whenever you're aware that it seems you're gonna get a favorable decision and you know five, six weeks have passed. That shouldn't happen. If it's more than five or six weeks, chances are, uh, remember 50% of all the favorables get reviewed. And then also unfavorables get reviewed. Um, some 50,000 to 75,000 cases across the country that are unfavorable also get this kind of targeted denial review to ensure that you know, the denials are being denied correctly. But as you can guess already, it's less of an interest to SSA whether or not you got denied correctly. It's more of an interest to them to make sure that if they're gonna pay benefits that indeed uh, the DDS follow all the rules and the regulations. Um, and uh, well, anyway, that is the DQB pre-effectuation review process, which happens behind the scenes. And if you're searching in the file, you will see their footprint behind in the record. Thanks, Linda. That's um, really great insider knowledge and something I didn't know um, could be the case. Um, and so um, Silvana put in the chat um, the fax number to fax inquiries to BDD and Karen um, put in the phone numbers to call um, and then you follow the message prompts and you can check the status of your case to get the barcode. Um, so jot those numbers down, um, um, put it in permanent Sharpie <laughs> where you can, you can call it. Um, okay, so just to give everyone the heads up, um, we have like about 15 more minutes. I'm going to talk about um, CEs and what to do when your case is denied and what to think about for the request for reconsideration. Um, and we have one more Q&A part with Linda. Um, that um, I think maybe Linda, if you briefly just wanna say, like maybe just um, briefly why we wanted to include this and the other one. And then there's a chart about the breakdown of how many cases are approved percentage wise. Uh, I'm gonna be really brief. So just forgive me for this. I, I guess the next several slides, what I wanted to do is give you a composition or understanding of disability examiners so when you cultivate a relationship with them, try to have an understanding of who they are. Uh, for one thing, all these disability examiners get paid different salaries depending on the DDS. Uh, to give you an example, in Georgia, a brand new disability examiner has to have four years to, of college degree, two years of experience, legal experience. The starting salary is $29,000. In Iowa, the very same disability examiner is gonna be making 51,000. Same work, 
same rules. They use the POMs, they issue determinations. Um, disability examiners have a high turnover rate. Working conditions are really strenuous. Uh, very few of them hang around for more than five, six years sometimes. So, so what you wanna know is, is the disability examiner you're talking to fairly new? If they are, you can guide them by using the palms and helping them. So that can be helpful. And they've been around for a while. They're stressed out. They don't like their work. Um, I uploaded some comments from indeed.com and we don't have to go through those. But essentially all the comments I found for disability examiners, um, it's, it's a very hard working condition. But keep in mind that if you are there to assist them, collaborate with them, partner up with them, you're going to give your client the best possible outcome because it does have an influence on the final, on the final um, determination. And I think the last thing I wanna talk on, Sarah, is the statistics. I'm gonna sum it up very quickly. You do not, do not stress out if you don't win many at the initial level. The average initial win is about 35 to 37% throughout the country. The reason the initial cases are so important is because at the hearing level, about 45% of those cases are won. And you have to have really good, strong development at the initial and reconsideration level to have a successful hearing. Um, the initial applications, um, they are very mechanized and don't get discouraged if you're losing more than half of them. The reason you do initial is to get them ready for good hearings so that we can win them down the road. Yeah, thank you. I have that chart and I, I seem to have lost it, but the visual that accompanied that is just like, it's 30, about 30% 30 of cases in Pennsylvania um, are approved at the initial level. So most of your cases are not going to be. And that 30% also includes people who are meeting listings, people who have stage four like cancer or kind of more less on the bubble cases. Um, so don't get discouraged, keep, keep at it. Um, so yeah, getting your medical records, um, we didn't talk about this, but, um, as with all attorney work, like come up with your theory of the case and think about how you, how you're going to prove that, what evidence are you going to, um, get and put in the file and think also to like, to when you're going to have the hearing, what do you need now to show consistency of your client's symptoms? Maybe your client suffers from depression and um, you can start to, to build the case and build the file to show um, that maybe she's isolating or um, maybe she has like stretches of time where she's unable to get out of bed. How can you document that? Who, who can speak to that and put that into the file? Um, it, which can you, can you um, talk to her doctor? Can you talk to her therapist and have her therapist fill out a residual functional capacity form to talk about um, instances where she's forgetful or distracted? Um, and um, we can we we can send some um, function forms to after this. But 
build build the case so that you can have your your kind of like dream case when it gets to hearing that you can have a file that's full of um, evidence to show consistency of symptoms that are making it hard for your client to work and um, and and having the the record um, reflect that both from like client testimony, third party reports, therapy notes, and um, doctor's records. Um, okay, so consultative exams, dun, dun, dun. Um, a lot of your clients are gonna be sent to for a consultative exam. This, um, again, broken record, like what's a consultative exam? Literally just Google POMS consultative exams and you're gonna see all of the rules about them. Um, but the too long didn't read version is that consultative exams are ordered when there is something missing from the record. For example, if your client is uh, has um, an allegation that they have asthma, but there isn't anything in the doctor's notes about asthma in the recent doctor's notes, they're probably gonna send your client to a consultative exam. Um, or if they are talking about low back pain, um, but there is not, um, evidence in the record of any imaging. They'll likely send your client to a consultative exam for an x-ray. Um, consultative exams in Pennsylvania are run by the IMA, always forget what it stands for, Medical Associates, Independent Medical Associates. Um, I'm seeing in the chat, GER. Yes, I am feeling that frustration too. Um, they are an they are contracted by BDD to do these exams. They're usually very rushed. Um, they'll say that like a, a client is able to um, move or you know manipulate objects or whatever within normal limits. But then you talk to your client and they never even you know demonstrated anything mobility wise. Um, so. Um, Here's a practice, here practice tips. Um, now that we can see the E and F sections on ERE for initial and recon exam, um, not initial and recon cases, you can go on there and see if a CE has been ordered and the reason why. You can see what IMA gets from BDD. And it might say like, anal uh, assess this person's gait ability to lift like whatever it is, um, or it might say x-ray of this region. So go on to eresssa.gov slash AR, log on, find your client's case, go to their folder, put in their social, and see why it was ordered. Um, during the pandemic, um, there is a flexible good cause policy, and it will not be held against your client if they do not go in person to IMA. Um, during the pandemic. They just have to cancel due to COVID. Those are the magic words. You can say it to BDD. You can say it on the phone um, to, to IMA. Um, and and that's, those are the magic words. Now, that's not gonna solve your problem that there's some evidence from the record that's missing, right? And so they might put the client's case on medical hold, like Linda said earlier, they might pause it. You might ask for that because you don't want them to decide 
and they're they're not supposed to hold it against your client and deciding it not in their favor when there's like CE canceled due to COVID, but maybe they come up with another reason why they all of a sudden don't need the CE and they're going to die anyway. So you might want to ask to put on medical hold. Um, and I got another question um, about like, can, can someone go to their own medical source? Yes. And um, that's probably better because they have a better relationship with their treating provider. And so um, if they're able to schedule an appointment with their treating provider, then you might be able to get the evidence that was missing. And so this is why it's really important to review all of the evidence as it comes in. So you can see, look for things like if your client's main complaint is a lower back pain and you get records from wherever, Temple Hospital, and there isn't any imaging and they have, maybe there is a diagnosis, but it's not based on objective evidence, you can predict that that's going to be needed. And so you can start having conversations with your client about the kind of um, what, what is needed in the treatment records. And yes, they can go to their own medical source. Um, sometimes they're not able to get an appointment before the CE is scheduled. So it's a little bit of a, a timing issue. Um, what is the process to see the files in the early stages? To see um, the, your cases, if your 1696 has been processed, you can go to ssa.gov AR, log in, log in. Don't look at my login info, everyone. Um, enter ERE and you can access your claimants folder. There's gonna be a two-step authentication process, so I'm not gonna click it. Um, and, and then you can see the E and the F sections. Um, you can also submit your evidence um, using the barcode and putting in the RQID and all that and all that good stuff. Um, okay, so prep your client for the consultative exam. Tell them the purpose, the reason why they're going. Um, they're gonna get a medical history form and that is going to be used as if they had that conversation with the doctor. So if your client fills out that they have hobbies and that they like to read and watch television, the consultative examiner is probably gonna put in the report that Mary likes to watch TV and likes to um, read. Um, never mind that like Mary never does any of that and she was just like mindlessly filling out this form. Um, so like talk to them about the, the medical history form, encourage them to think about um, their disability when they're filling it out. What makes it hard to do their activities? Do they need help? Do they need reminders? put all of that in the medical history form because that will then go into the report. Um, what about evidence submitted to the CE examiner? Any advice on making sure it's there before the exam? You can, you can like print it out and give it to the client to bring. Um, we have a fax number for IMA in South Philly and I have faxed something there before. Um, it, Short of like the client bringing it to them and giving it to the doctor, 
um, it's hard to like a hundred percent confidence get um, evidence or some records. If you're gonna give evidence to the consultative examiner, try to limit it to like the best five or you know max eight pages that you have um, to guarantee that they'll actually look at it. Um, we had this question come up recently where we were looking through like what we should send and we ultimately decided not to send anything because we thought some of the stuff in the record might be used against the client in the exam. Um, and then get a copy of the CE. You can get it from the online folder on ERE. Um, you can make a request um, and you should, you're entitled to get it with your 1696, but I'm giving you fair warning that you might have difficulty doing that. So the best way to make sure 100% that you're gonna get it is to have your client fill out the consent form and put your name and your address as one of the people to get it. Sarah, um, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt right here. I have to get the last poll box launched okay. so people don't yeah. have a fit. So um, attorneys, please respond to the question. You'll have about two minutes that I'll leave it up. And I'm sorry to interrupt, Sarah. Go ahead and continue. That's fine, thank you. Thanks. Uh, the last thing I'll say about this is um, nothing, because I forget. Um, okay, so just to wrap it up, um, if you lose at the initial level, um, continue to do what you're doing of like looking at the weaknesses or maybe the missing evidence that you have and try to get it um, for a, a, and keep track of the appeal deadline. Um, make sure that you're within the appeal deadline. That's your number one obligation. Um, somebody, for example, I had a client who um, has um, pretty severe autistic sim uh, symptoms and he is, uh, he has autism, he's autistic, but his school records um, say that he has ADHD and they're not, um, he's not getting the services and he doesn't have the evaluation reflect what his actual disability is. And so in between the initial and recon, I've been working with mom to explain to her what the school records say and what, what they don't say. And she's been working with the school to get an accurate updated evaluation from a school psychologist. So that is going to be um, medical evidence for the hearing eventually. Um, recon award rates, as Linda mentioned in the chat, are about 11 to 13% nationally. And I think in Pennsylvania, it's even lower. So um, just do your best to submit as much evidence as you have that's missing and um, maybe an updated function report to reflect if things are more, have, been, have worsened and keep in touch with the adjudicator and just know that you're building your case to be as strong as possible if you can't win uh, for the hearing. And so with that, oh, and you can submit your recon online. So just do like disability appeal online and you can submit online. And with that, um, that's the end of our presentation. Thank you all for your participation and your questions. Um, and thank you for doing this work. Bye everyone.
Sorry, guys. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Sarah, Linda, Sylvania, thank you. Um, thanks, for everybody who attended. Uh, this has been a great series of um, trainings this February. The numbers really do show a lot of you people were interested. So thanks, everyone, and have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Take Bye. care. Thank you.